No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey and the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long group, I'm sorry, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Uh, Marilia is not with us tonight because she's a little under the weather. We're hoping that she feels better out there. Um, and she'll be back next week. Uh, I also want to mention that this week uh, we saw um, Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah pass. He was the longest serving senator in the history of Utah. He was a Republican, but he stood with us on a thing called the D.C. Voting Rights Act. He tried to get the people of the District of Columbia vote, and for that we will be forever grateful and our condolences go out to uh, him, his family, and his friends, and the people of the state of Utah. Tonight, we have a great guest. We have Derek Gray, who's been an archivist in the People's Archive at the District of Columbia Public Library since 2008. Mr. Gray has a special passion for the presentation documentation and preservation of African-American experiences in Washington, D.C. We're here to, among other things, talk about his new book, The NAACP in Washington, D.C., From Jim Crow to Home Rule. And welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Gray. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Senator Brown. Pleasure to be with you tonight. Well, and let me tell you, before we start, uh, um, so that I can be totally transparent, I am married to a librarian who believes that the greatest people on the face of the planet are librarians. So <laughs> let me just say that I already have great, I already have great respect for you, oh, thank uh, you. and we're happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, and I've known a lot of librarians in my life. You know, my wife was in charge of all D.C. public school libraries at one time. And, and so I've met a lot of tons of librarians in my life. She taught at Catholic University, taught library science. And, and anyway, you're great people. You're really yes. very and interesting yes. people. Uh, librarians well, and archivists are uh, yeah, wonderful and archivists, you species. Know. Yeah. Yes, I know they're, I know they're different. <laughs> And, and But the one thing I think that all of you share is a great curiosity about things, you know. I mean, don't ask my wife a question that you don't want the answer to. You know, if you're That's watching right. a movie yeah. and you go, what else has she been in? You can, <laughs> you can bet you're going to get her whole resume in about 30 seconds. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk first about your new book. Tell us about your new book and why you think it's important and what does it have to say? Okay, well, um, my uh, my book is um, I uh, wanted to uh, do the book um, because uh, I, I really have to um, say that I, I pretty much thank the uh, many people who have come through the doors of the uh, DC Public Library. Uh, we were the Washingtonian Division. But now, uh, since we're in the new building, we have a new name, the People's Archive. And um, I've been with the library since 2008, and uh, many people came through the doors looking, uh, seeking information on local civil rights activism in the city. Uh, grad students, undergrads, authors, scholars, um, everybody and anybody. And... Um, 
I have to say um, that, you know, people come into the library thinking that the person behind the desk has all the information, but I've discovered that you can learn just as much from the person who is coming in when you're behind the desk. So it's a two-way street. So I was pretty much inspired um, by those folks because I was thinking about something that we don't have. We don't have the records of the NAACP in our collection. We have a lot of wonderful other resources, but we don't have those records. So that kind of just piqued my interest. Um, often we think about, um, you know, we automatically, when we hear, you know, hear about the civil rights movement, we always automatically think of the 50s and the 60s and, and the South. But, you know, obviously, you know, it began much earlier than, than that time period. So in terms of the NAACP, um, knowing that the district was, you know, um, you know, was segregated Jim Crow City, um, I just became very interested in what was going on in D.C. in terms of its work. Um, I wanted to know who were its major players, when was it founded, um, what were its, its victories, what were its defeats, and um, so forth. So um, that, that's what really got me um, interested in the book. And basically the book is about um, its founding in March of 1912, um, all the way to the, up to 1972-73, uh, with the passage of home rule in the district. So it was a lot to cover in those 61 years. Um, but it's an important story because there's a lot of work done on the organization nationally, but the branches uh, in, in states and whatever um, are very fascinating because of their unique challenges and so forth. So the D.C. branch was the fourth largest no, I'm, I'm sorry. It was the I'm sorry. It was the fourth branch to form um, after New York, Boston, and Chicago, um, and it bore the unique distinction that it was pretty much the first all-black branch um, because they, the, the the NAACP when it was founded in 1909, it was um, primarily founded by and uh, run by white progressives. I mean, it, it was a um, coalition of black and white, but um, uh, in terms of its administration, most of its leaders were, were white progressives. And the, those first three branches were predominantly white. And the D.C. branch was the first um, branch to be, was to be all African-American, pretty much. And... Um, also, it was it it bore the um, unique responsibility of playing two roles. Um, it was um, the NAACP's representative in D.C. Um, and it was to monitor legislation being passed in Congress, um, particularly a lot of legislation that would negatively impact African Americans. And it was also the um, uh, organization that would look out for the interests um, of black communities in D.C. Well, let me ask you, what is it that, that you found that surprised you? What, 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 what's one thing that surprised you that you didn't expect to find when you did your research? Um, it's a good question. I, I, what I, what shocked me the most was pretty much what came to be the main argument of the book, um, or the main topic theme. Um, what 
with the what kind of a branch would it be? And I discovered that there were there was basically the branch jockeyed back and forth or oscillated back and forth between um, accepting um, um, being accepted by the white establishment versus being a more militant organization. And throughout the years covered in the book, it, it went back and forth. Sometimes it was um, uh, you know, it, there was moderate to conservative leadership, and then there was um, more more radical militant action. Um, so that was that was what really surprised me. And what I argue is that the um, and I, I bookend the book in terms of. The, when it first organized in D.C., it was it was it, it dismissed um, not by just um, you know white leaders in the white press, but also um, the African American press, and that was attributed to um, that was because of of, of, of um, a man named William Calvin Chase who was the editor of the Washington Bee and was quite quite a firebrand on on racism. And he just basically argued that, well, you know, these movements um, that bring together black and white just don't work. He just thought it was just another movement that just would not thrive. Um, he had um, he had gone back to other movements um, like the Equality League and W.B. Du Bois' Niagara Movement, and he was a harsh critic of Du Bois. And he said, you know, this is just not going to work. Um, blacks need to obtain civil rights and uh, freedom on their own. So he dismissed it for a whole year. So, again, going back to the book ending, um, when you get into the 60s, um, that's exactly what the folks who were uh, the Black Power movement was beginning to elevate its voice in D.C. by that time, and you had all these other competing organizations, like uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Congress of Racial Equality and the Black United Front and Julius Hobson's Association of Community Teams. All of these um, and, and SNCC. Um, all of these organizations were saying, you know, this is, you know, the, the NAACP's um, brand of leadership uh, was not working. And that's how a lot of black Washingtonians felt by the 60s. So what Chase said in 1910 is what the, these, you know, what the black militants and radicals were saying um, in the 60s. But before you get to that point, the branch was the most it was the major civil rights organization in the city and it was the leading organization in the city um so really up until the 50s um you know it was instrumental in toppling um segregation in housing and education and just and and um law enforcement <clears throat> but by the time you get to um, the sixties um, it had waned well that was a that was a primary criticism during the civil rights movement in the sixties right there were I remember a lot of people came after Martin Luther King there was that there was that division of the kind of uh, you know Malcolm X approach exactly. by any means necessary. And, and Dr. King's approach that if you lose your soul, it really doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah, there's always been that tension. And something that I found very interesting, and I, I, I wonder if you could give me your, your take on this, but in a book written by Kate Mazur called An Example for All the 
land, uh, where she talks about the beginning of Washington. Uh, Washington, in, which was run by the Republicans in those days, was on the one hand pretty liberal about things like uh, African Americans starting their own social clubs and and uh, um, you know work related things, but they really set forth a policy of segregation, which ended up being the rule of the land for many many years. Did it not? Yeah, and you know, in the in in DC, um, I talk about this like the branches formation followed in a long line of activism, um, and I go back to uh, you can go back to <clears throat> uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson uh, decision in 1896. Um, ushered in by the Supreme Court, separate but equal. And, you know, you had the National Association of Colored Women, the Colored Women's League, and the Niagara Movement, um, and those the, the, the Colored Women's League and, and the uh, Colored Women's Clubs, um, you know, these were... Uh, you know these these activists, um, African American women, made up um, the bulk of you know the civil rights activism way before the branch came into existence. And again, because of Plessy, uh, they had a lot of meetings, like at the Ninth Street, Nineteenth Street Baptist Church, for example, uh, and folks like Mary Church Terrell and Anna Julia Cooper who were leaders in those organizations. So, and, and, and also they were also active in Du Bois' Niagara Movement. The Niagara Movement had um, members in 21 states and D.C., and a lot of these folks um, who were part of these early organizations um, later, formed, um, uh, later formed the branch. Well, it's one thing that's always been frustrating to me uh, as somebody that advocates for the rights of D.C. residents is that we did play such an important role throughout history in everything from, you know, one of the plaintiffs in Board versus uh, Brown versus Board of Education was from D.C. Of course, the Dr. King's famous speech was given on the mall here. Uh, the March on Washington was a seminal moment in the civil rights movement. There's been a lot of civil rights stuff that's gone on here in the District of Columbia uh, for people that still don't have equal rights. I mean, it, 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 it's somewhat frustrating. I don't think a lot of people uh, realize that. Let me ask you about the, the focus of the NAACP. One of my problems in Washington in getting people involved in, in, in fighting for their own civil rights here, because we don't have representation, is the fact that we focus more on national issues than we do local issues here in the district. Uh, the people in power in the district can tell you more about Hillary Clinton than they can about Muriel Bowser. They, they focus on national issues so much more, or tell you more about Donald Trump than they, uh, than they can tell you about mm -hmm. somebody like Julius Hobson, who right. was one of my heroes and a real leader. Uh, uh, what do you think about the NAACP? Did we lose something because they had to focus on the national, uh, or, or did they focus also on local uh, uh, from that time, from that gym? Yeah, yeah, that's um, a good question. So, again, that that's what... That's what made it so important and made it so challenging um, for the for the branch because you know it was it was serving two constituencies, if you will. I mean, you know, um, pretty much the nation again, you know, because um, when the 
when the branch formed, um, it was formed in March of 1912, and that was the year that Woodrow Wilson was elected president of the United States. And, you know, maybe about a, um, about a couple of months um, before, you know, Wilson is elected, there were some uh, leadership issues um, with the branch. And um, there was a, a man, Archibald Grimke, who came in later and was, uh, was installed after uh, John Milton Waldron, uh, pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church, who, who was a great civil rights leader. He had an impeccable civil rights resume. Um, I mean, he was treasurer of the Niagara Movement. He was had um, fought for civil rights in Florida. Um, he formed the Alley Improvement Association in, in Washington, and which helped um, uh, poor African Americans in squalid alley dwellings. So he was he was really um, you know significant. Um, but he, he, due to some issues, he, he was, he, he was ousted and Grimke came in and the, the issue, so the, the biggest issues facing the branch was what, what really, what was the issue that, that needed to really galvanize the branch? And that's when Wilson comes in and who, as we all know, um, along with his cabinet, um, proceeded to segregate the federal government, and um, which was very detrimental to Black Washingtonians and, and and so forth. So that and and, and the the branch so the branch now had an issue to fight for. I mean, they called it the new slavery, and they were like, no, this this is not going to. We're not going to allow this. We're not going to let it stand. And so they coordinated a very well-developed strategy with the national office uh, to launch this campaign against the Wilson administration um, and these segregation policies. I mean, it was it was just absolutely well coordinated. I mean, the, the branch members and Grimke would go right up to Capitol Hill and and and, and in hearings and and talk about what was going on and encouraged. Um, black workers to report what was going on. And so it was, uh, and, and, and at the same time, you had these um, folks in Congress who were also calling for, um, so it's, uh, calling for segregation in, in the government. So it wasn't just Wilson and, 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 you know, the Treasury Secretary and the Postmaster General, but it was also, you know, members of Congress. They were passing bills of, you know, allowing for segregation, segregated streetcars and anti-intermarriage laws. So, again, they're affecting black people in the, all over the country, but, but also uh, black residents of, of the district. So it's that, that local and national. And then also, as you get on into the... Um, 1920s and 30s, um, they're taking on lynching and, and police brutality. So although there weren't, like, lynchings in D.C., these, the, the branch was arguing, well, you know, police brutality is akin to lynching. So what's going on in Mississippi and Texas, that's the same thing, that, that same type of white violence is going on in in the district. Um, so again, the the, the national um, was and and the local were were pretty much pretty much the same. So um, and no other branch had had was facing with had faced was facing this 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 challenge. Um, so you know no no other branch you know the the the, the foe the enemy if you will. Um, was was not the president of the United States, but in in D.C. Um, that's what that's what was going on. And again, all eyes were on were on the branch. I mean, there were you can go into the records and see where people are writing to the branch from all over. Like, what are you going to do? Or here's what you need to do 
in D.C., look out for us, because what happens in D.C. is, you know, is going to affect us in Ohio and, 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 and you know, uh, Mississippi or, or Texas or, or Georgia. Well, I, you know, I've argued for a long time that they should teach a course on on this in D.C. You know, there should be a course on the statehood movement, our, our attempt to get equal rights in the District of Columbia uh, in D.C. colleges, because it's a great, it's not only a great uh, uh, look at a civil rights struggle, but it really is a great look at American history. There's so much that that went on here in the District of Columbia, uh, from court cases to protests to just the sort of thing that that, that you're talking about. That uh, you know, I think there's so much to be learned. Uh, we started a yeah. website called Teach Democracy, which does just that. We try to show case how Washington history is American history. But let me ask you, is there an ebb and flow that you found with the NAACP in terms of their popularity? I think now about groups that have come forth, several of whom we've had on the show, like Black Lives Matter and Color of Change, uh, they seem to be, you know, again, uh, pushing an agenda that 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 seems more radical than the traditional NAACP, or more, and I shouldn't say more radical, more aggressive than the, the, the typical NAACP agenda. Do you find that the popularity of, of the organization uh, kind of ebb, ebbs and flows in, in, in its history? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and that that that's um, going back to the one of the main arguments in the book. It, that's exactly what I found. Um, you know, it was when it when it when it first was formed in in DC. Um, it was it, it was really the, you know the, the the major civil rights organization, so it was the only one. And but then some. Then, then there was another group, for example, like the National Race Congress that that formed, and where its leaders were arguing that you know um, you're not representing or reaching out, or you're not connecting with all Black Washingtonians, and 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 that's where you where where class comes into play, and that was one thing that really came out in in my research is you know because it was founded by the Black elite. In DC, and the, a lot of the criticisms that later came were that you know it really did not connect with the working poor, I mean the working class or, or the the poor in the city, whereas these other groups took up those took up those issues. So the the popularity did ebb and flow because by by the by the 30s um you do start seeing more aggressive militant or radical whatever term you want to use organizations that are are basically competing with the with with the with the NAACP in DC like the New Negro Alliance whereas and 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 the 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 argument is what vehicle of activism do you do you use because the 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 branch was always co- comfortable with legal proceedings. You know, we'll, we'll go through the courts, we'll go through petitioning, and you know, meeting in office boardrooms, and and you know that type of a thing. Um, not not demonstrations, not picketing, not um, more street action, if you will, not getting out there and and, and really marching and, and protesting, and some of those defeats were called out by some of these organizations because of that, uh, as an example of that. Um, so, um, it, 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 and again, when you get to, um, get to the sixties where, where I pretty much end, um, you know, the, 
you know, this new wave of leaders that come about, like Judith Hobson and and Marion Barry, um, that they're 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 offering the leadership um, that Black Washingtonians want to see. They they have the appetite for you know radicals and, and militants. It was at, at, by this point you're seeing that the the popularity has declined because the the lead the activism and the leadership is seen. Um, by many as well it's it's too tepid it's too uh moderate um it's it's just and and you and you see that with um you know that like i think that that's you, you see that currently where you know black lives matter and some of these other groups are saying that you know the NAACP's leadership um might be a little too 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 traditional and that and that's when with the with the which is what's interesting is that the the leaders that were a little bit more radical, if you will. They had their their. Um, they had launched their careers. Um, they had their beginnings in in the branch. Like Hobson was a member of the branch first before he left and became a member of CORE, and then he left CORE and became a member of the Association of Community Teams, um, which was pretty much a Black Power organization. Um, so it's just really interesting that these leaders were they, where they got their start. So in a sense, the you know the almost like the branch trained them to be, um, you know what what they ended up becoming. Well, let let me ask you because this has become an issue today. There are two Republican congressmen in. Um, that in the current Congress that have introduced legislation to remove home rule in the District of Columbia, to get rid of home rule. Uh, how instrumental was the NAACP in making home rule happen? And, and by the way, our friend uh, Julius Hobson used to call it home full because he, he, he didn't believe it was, it was, you know, it really was self-determination yeah, since we're still yeah, controlled but, by Congress. But but how how instrumental was the NAACP in bringing that about? Well, um, I did find that the for a long time the branch's focus was segregation, and it, it wasn't home rule, mm -hmm. and that. That that was something that Marion Barry noticed when he came to D.C. in 1965, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Free D.C. movement that he launched, and along with the D.C. Coalition of Conscious, and that was something that, at first, Barry was able to um, unite a whole bunch of different groups around. But this was a perfect example of the 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 um the, the perception that boycotts and was was antagonistic to certain groups. And that's exactly what happened with Free DC movement. Um Barry um threatened economic boycotts for, you know, these white businesses that did not support the Free DC movement. And the branch pulled out of that. Mm. They, 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 they withdrew their support. They, they said that was the, the wrong way to go. That, that was extortion. That was blackmail, if you will. It's like you don't, you don't get to your goal by following that route. And so, although the Free DC movement um, did not bring about home rule um, to DC, um, that that was just a very um, a pivotal moment where um, I think, in, again, in the in the particularly in the '60s, where the branch was seen by Washingtonians as being. Um, somewhat ineffective on that front and that's where you know so and, and that's when the so it's important to to note the difference again you know 
legal segregation, um, you know, that, that they were instrumental in that. And I, and I, I just want to keep going back to that in, in terms of toppling that. But then in the 60s, it's a new fight. You know, it's political inequality, social inequality. And that's where these other groups were seen as more effective in um, showcasing that. Because even even King, um, when he comes to D.C. Um, in 65, he, he acknowledges that importance. Um, you know, he had, for the March on Washington, it was, it was, you know, civil rights and, and jobs and freedom. But he comes back in 65 and starts talking about home rule and, and its importance of home rule. And his connection to the branch, for him to kind of be talking about it more than, than what the branch was doing was just a very, very um, uh, interesting uh, discovery. I bet, and you know, I find it I find it so ironic that you know, in 1953, the Supreme Court decided to separate. There couldn't be something uh, uh, known as separate but equal. There could, you know, it was impossible to be separate but equal. But yet, the District of Columbia is, you know, Congress still sees us as separate but equal. We're different than everybody else, but they argue that 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 we're equal. Uh, let me ask you, let me change gears a little bit, because I've always been fascinated by this. You were the co-author of a book called uh, Angels of Deliverance, which talked about the Underground Railroad. There was a lot of activity in this area, was there not? I don't know about D.C., but of course, Harriet Tubman was from Maryland. Is that right? And and she the, the railroad went through Maryland. Did it also go through D.C.? Uh, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not, that's, uh, I, I really can't, can't answer. I'm, I'm not the one to really talk to about that, that period. Um, okay. I, I, I am, as a native of New York, um, you know, uh, and Long Island, um, that's what that, 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 that other book focused on, and I, I was just one, I was oh, one I of four co-authors, so I just did one little chapter. But um, I can't. Uh, there's other folks that that could better answer um, the Underground Railroad in D.C. than than, than me. Okay, uh, I still have family on Long Island. Uh, oh, really? Uh, Where? Uh, uh, Southampton. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. A, a place where I could never afford to live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my mother's family, I'm from North New Jersey, and uh -huh. my mother's family emigrated to Southampton, where they were maids in 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 the big fancy houses out uh -huh. there. And my father used to say, only your mother's family would have emigrated from Southampton to North. <laughs> you know? and, and, and if you've ever been to North, you would understand why he said that. It was quite a. It was quite a. Yeah. Trip. Well, I, I, I've, yeah, I, I, I never. Uh, that, that's one part of the island because uh, I'm from Uniondale, Nassau County. Uh -huh. um, I, I never got out to to out that way. <laughs> no, we used to go visit our fancy relatives, uh, uh -huh. and I remember as a child having to take out my best clothes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. We wouldn't so that we wouldn't be embarrassed when we were uh -huh. out there from Newark. Uh, um, what is there anything that I haven't asked? Uh, the show's getting on in time now. We have a, a, about 15 minutes left. But is there anything that you want to talk about from the book that we haven't talked about? Um, no, I think I, I think we're doing great. Um, Good. But I, okay. I just, yeah, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, um, That you know, the, the, the this history is very important in that uh, you know, um, the, again going back to the whole you know, um, and I just think it's an unfortunate um, myth, if you will, 
uh, in our society about like when, why, how we tend to focus on a certain time period in terms of um, the civil rights movement, and also where you know that it was just in the South. You know, it was national. Um, I mean, I I'm, um, was um, talking with someone. Um, back home, who you know, who's looking at um, doing some work on you know the civil rights movement in New York and on Long Island, you know that type of a thing. So um, just to emphasize that you know it's it that DC has a very important story, and and we've talked about this, and you were absolutely right. You know, it's it's the local that fascinates me, um, particularly because um, you know I'll admit. You know, growing up, you know, I just thought D.C. was, you know, it was monuments and memorials and the White House. Um, but, you know, since I've been um, with the library, um, and this is because, you know, the People's Archive is, is our local D.C. history center, um, you know, it's it's really just, I can't emphasize enough just how rich um, the local history of Washington D.C. is, and I just hope that um, this book um, contributes to that uh, a little bit. Well, let me ask you about the new library, which was a big controversy in Washington for a long time. Some people wanted to uh, renovate it, and some people wanted to tear it down and rebuild it. Now, I got to be honest that I was never one of the people that saw any, uh, you know, beauty in the building as, as it existed. I know that it was uh, designed originally by some famous architect, and, you know, there were a lot of historical preservation people who wanted to keep the basic form of uh, basic shape of the library. But the question I have for you is, while the library, before the renovation, you needed uh, you needed a private detective to find the Washingtonia collection. You couldn't, you know, it wasn't something that was rel- relatively accessible. It wasn't out in the open. You had to go in there looking for it. W- what about it now? Is it is it does it have uh, is it the same thing? Is it only a is is it only uh, does it only seem uh, acceptable or available to researchers and people that that want to know about DC, or can the general public walk in there? Yeah, and, um, and, and yeah, I, I, I I'm, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Um, it, it's always been open and accessible because it's in a you know within that's one of the. Um, uh, that's the advantage of it being in, you know, in a public library. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, uh, we're um, on the fourth floor um, of the library. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's open. Uh, we welcome walk-ins. Um, we do also uh, make research appointments so we can uh, pull items ahead of time for you. But um, no, it's, it's completely accessible you can you can walk in and there's someone at the desk right there to assist you and we're, we're glad to help you with uh, any questions you have what about have you seen the Washington Historical Society have you been over to their building which is the old Carnegie library uh, have you seen what they've done over there Yes, I, I I have been over there. Yes. And it's really cool, is it not? I mean, yes, for yes. the first time, mm-hmm. is there something? Is there a way that we could do that at the library where it just like made, even if it was only on occasion, uh, made uh, that collection kind of the centerpiece, highlighted it, uh, where we do where we reach out to the community and try to draw them in, because I think it does have an amazing history. Are we trying to do things like that? Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to come on, comment on that. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, I think yeah. more of that. You know, might want to talk with administrators of both. And yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I'll, I'm not going to comment on that. Well, you know, I would love to raise some money through the DC government to do more of that because I think you know I think that people are really amazed at the extraordinary history of Washington, D.C., and they don't know about it locally. You say that, you know, when, you know, growing up on Long Island, you thought it was monuments, and, you know, I think most people in Washington feel that, too. They really don't understand the history of the District of Columbia. First of all, we have a very transient population, uh, you know, so there are a lot of people like me that weren't born here, but, but spent their lives here. Uh, and I don't think that most Washingtonians really understand the history that's gone on here beyond the national events. I mean, we all know about the we all know about the March on Washington. We all know about you know uh, Supreme Court decisions and things like that. But locally, I don't think a lot of people know who Julius Hobson is. I don't think people understand that Marion Barry was a civil rights leader before he came to Washington. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, and yeah, and that—that—that's—that's. I'm. Yeah, that's that's. That that might be true, and I think that that's all the more. uh, That's all the more reason why um, you know these institutions um, like the Library and the People's Archive, um, and 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 and, you know, um, uh, a lot of the other institutions around DC. Um, are so important um, to tell that story because we're all telling that that story, and um, you know they, we're 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 he, we're there and we're available, and you know there's wonderful resources um, all over that that tell that narrative, and um, I would just encourage um, you know your your listeners. Um, to 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 check out those places. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. How do we interface with with the Washingtonian collection? Can we get stuff Washingtonian collection? Can we get stuff online? Is there a way to connect with you online? Yes, um, you go to it's dclibrary.org, and um, you'll see the People's Archive um, link. Uh, in the banner, um, and you you can call us, you can email us um, with a, with a question or, or call us. Um, again, we are located um, on the fourth floor uh, of the new building, uh, and we also have um, there's a permanent exhibition uh, in the building um, that that is um, centered around. Dr. King's legacy, uh, since the building is named after him. Uh, so that that's also another way to invite people in. Um, you can check out the exhibit. It's, it spans the entire floor, um, uh, and and you can you can come on in. But yes, we do. And and some of our we do have um, uh, kind of like an uh, um, archives catalog on our website, so you can search for um, collections to see what we have. And we also do have some digitized uh, material um, on, on our website. It's called Dig DC, um, and it's uh, basically a collection of um, some digitized portions of collections and some born digital materials as well. So um, we do have a, an online presence. And if I want to buy your book, how do I do that? Tell our listeners how to buy your book. Oh yes, it's available at any um, any online bookseller. Um, I would encourage um, uh, listeners to, to please support Black businesses, Black bookstores. So Mahogany Books, Loyalty Books, um, it's available there, um, and of course um, the Arcadia website um, or, or Amazon. Um, so. It, it, it's available um, in many places. And, uh, what do you see? Any prediction? I I know that I know that your 
analysis covers uh, from the founding of the uh, organization until the uh, until home rule in the 1970s. But do you have any sense of of the future of the NAACP? Do you see it still as a relevant organization that has a a place in America among some more let's call them progressive groups? Yeah, I do. I, I do um, because it is the you know it is the nation's oldest civil rights organization and has a, a wonderful rich history um, to it. Um, and I, I do. I have heard that question before, you know, um, by uh, all types of people. You know, is it this question of you know is it still quote unquote relevant? Um, and I think it is, um, along with some of these other organizations that have emerged. Um, you know, the black community is um, very diverse. Um, so, you know what. Um, I think it's it's on the person to decide what what type of organization they they support and what works for them. Um, but yes, I, I do see it. Um, I, I, it's 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 still relevant today, and, and and it always will be, in my opinion. And it also, correct me if I'm wrong, gives us great context on on the experience of African Americans in in America. And especially in Washington D.C., yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm a believer that that past is prologue. So we learn so much from history. So, uh, yeah. And uh, Derek Ray, let me thank you so much for being with us and uh, educating us a little bit uh, about the NAACP, uh, an important organization in in our country. I hope that people will look into your book, The NAACP in Washington, D.C., From Jim Crow to Home Rule. It's uh, the uh, publisher is American Heritage. Um, get this no, it's, uh, it's Arcadia. Ar- Arcadia. Oh, I'm sorry. We have That's American okay. Heritage. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to fire that research person. Arcadia <laughs> Publishers. And thanks so much for being with us. And at the end of Thank the, you, Senator Brown. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Yeah, and at the end of the show, we always dedicate a song. So here's 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 one to you, uh, Derek, for your hard work. Um, this is uh, more of a modern civil rights song. This is John Mayer, Waiting on the World to Change. We'll see you all next week. All right. Thanks Thank for you. helping us.